We are looking this morning at Mark chapter 12, and so I'm going to have you go ahead and turn there. But while you turn there, I want to read paragraph 2 of our confession, uh, of chapter 14, paragraph 2 of our confession as it relates to summarizing for us the Bible's teaching on saving faith. It says, saving faith. It says, by this faith, Christians believe to be true everything revealed in the Word, recognizing it as the authority of God Himself. They also perceive that the Word is more excellent than every other writing and everything else in the world because it displays the glory of God in His attributes, the excellencies of Christ in His nature and offices, and the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit in His activities and operations. So they are enabled to entrust their souls to the truth believed. They respond differently according to the content of each particular passage, obeying the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and the one to come. But the principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. So that is paragraph two of our confession on saving faith. Right? We know its foundation is in Christ Jesus alone, and any growth in grace, any capacity we have to believe is because of this gift called faith. So praise God for that. Well, like I said, we are in Mark uh, chapter 12, and, and this morning we are going to look specifically at verses 13 through 17. And, uh, and as we've been looking over the last couple of weeks as it relates to some of these confrontational uh, conversations that Christ has been having with the religious leaders, primarily with the Sanhedrin over the last uh, few weeks, that is going to continue this morning in this question about taxes. And so allow me to read verses 13 down through verse 17. John Mark, he wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Then they sent to him, to, to Christ, some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and you care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. And here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? Why do you test me? Bring me a Daenerys that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that you've inspired it and you've preserved it, Lord. We thank you and have confidence in it, Lord, knowing that you are its ultimate author, the unchangeable God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, our text this morning, it, 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 it picks up sometime, uh, sometime later after the confrontation that Jesus had with the, the Sanhedrin, with these uh, religious leaders who, who oversaw uh, the religious life of the Jewish people, but especially the religious life at the Jewish temple. And, and I hope that you see uh, just over these last few weeks, and we're going to look at this in the weeks to come as well, but just how much conflict happened at the Jewish temple. And, and, and just within these last few days of the life of Jesus, his, his first advent ministry, right? Uh, the, the person in ministry of Jesus uh, stood in opposition to how religious life happened at the Jewish temple. And, and like I said, over the next few weeks, we're going to see these religious leaders approach Jesus with, with a series of questions. And, and we're going to get even into the nature of those questions together this morning. Now, we see in our text that the Sanhedrin, okay, which were, by the way, the people that Jesus spoke about primarily in the parable that we looked at last week, the parable of the vineyard owner, as it related to God's judgment of the priesthood. Right? So the, the Sanhedrin there that, that understood, by the way, just by way of reminder, they understood that Jesus was principally talking about them in the parable. Okay, and so, so there, there was a clarity uh, to this parable, especially with its Old Testament context that we, we, we thought through together uh, last week and, and the particular language that Jesus used. There was clarity amongst the Sanhedrin that Jesus was targeting, speaking about them and the judgment that they were to receive, okay? And so, so that happens, and, and sometime after, our text opens up this morning with the Sanhedrin sending some of their disciples back to Jesus to trap him, okay? So the Sanhedrin, the, these people are coming on behalf of the Sanhedrin, so it wouldn't be inappropriate for us to think of these people as like spies, okay? They're, they're like spies for the Sanhedrin. And so these disciples, they're the Pharisees, but it's not just the Pharisees that come to trap Jesus. The Pharisees bring along with them the um, Herodians. Now, if you know anything about that relationship, you would realize there's not much of a relationship between the Pharisees and the Herodians. They, they didn't have much in common. In fact, they had different allegiances. Uh, one commentator put it like this, the Herodians, they were a Jewish political party that sympathized with the rulers of the Herodian dynasty, and therefore they sympathized with Rome. Okay? The, the Herods, they, they weren't pure uh, Jews, and, and, and they did whatever Rome wanted them to do. And as a result, the Jewish people largely disliked them. So, so they were normally at odds with the Pharisees because the, the, the loyalties of the Herodians rested um, uh, with uh, those that the Pharisees and with those that many of the, the Jewish people would see as illegitimate and they would see as ungodly. Uh, but they were united in their despising of Jesus. Okay, They, they came together. 
because they both despised Jesus. And, and this isn't the first time that we see these unlikely allies come together. Uh, Mark tells us, he recorded this for us back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. You, you, you see them plotting together. It says, then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him, against Christ. And, and this, is, this is what the plot was, how they might destroy him. Okay, that, that is the target. Okay, so, so we see that this is a plot that has been in the making for quite a while. Okay, it's a plot that's been in the making for quite a while. The goal of the Pharisees and the Herodians, again, these unlikely allies, the goal was to destroy this common enemy. Right? They both saw Jesus as a threat, but uh, uh, for different reasons. For different reasons. The Jewish leaders saw Jesus as an ecclesiastical threat. In other words, they saw Jesus as a threat to their, their power in, in the church, if you will. They're a threat to their influence, a threat to their status, a threat to their control. And the Herodians, they saw the same things, but as it was related to the state, okay? As it was related to the political sphere. So, there was a concern about Christ as it related to the church. There was a concern about Christ as it related to the state. So these two groups, the religious group and the political group, they come together to do nothing short of destroying Jesus. And the phrase that Mark uses in our text demonstrates that the Sanhedrin sent these two groups to quote, if you're looking at your text, to catch him, right, catch Jesus in his words, to catch him in his words. Now, this is a unique expression, catch him in his words. In fact, this is the only place in the New Testament that it's used, and it connotes a, uh, uh, um, a violent pursuit, okay? So, think violent pursuit here, and, and it should, as I said a moment ago, it should alert us to this being a trap. Okay, this is a trap that's been set. These groups are trying to trap Jesus. They're like hunters, and they see Jesus as their prey, and they're going after him. So this isn't, this isn't a friendly, innocent sort of chit-chat, right? They're not approaching Jesus to have some sort of honest discussion with him. Their aim is to trap. Their aim is to seize their prey. That's what they're after and and notice how they approach Jesus and and I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this in in my second uh, um, note for you this morning or my second takeaway for you this morning but but they attempt to manipulate Jesus through flattery okay they they attempt to manipulate him through flattery and and although they are insincere right although they don't believe what it is that they're saying they are nonetheless saying true things about Jesus. Right? They're saying true things about Jesus. They tell him that he is true. That is to say that he's truthful and he's honest. And they say that Jesus does not, quote, care about anyone because he doesn't regard the person of man, but teaches the way of God in truth. That's what we see in verse 14. And, and in the Greek, that means literally that he doesn't look at a person's face. He does not, that doesn't mean Jesus never made eye contact. Uh, uh, but it means he doesn't look at a person's face. And so I put, it, put it like this for a moment. Have you ever stared at someone uh, that you're talking to and you picked up a disagreement 
based on their body language or them maybe wincing at something that you said. And then you're hypersensitive about you're evaluating in your head, what did I just say? What did I just cause them offense? And you begin to walk on eggshells around them and it just feels like a minefield that you're trying to navigate, right? Jesus never did that, okay? Jesus never did that. He never succumbed to that kind of pressure. He never succumbed to that form of manipulation. And so what the Pharisees and the Herodians were saying, although they didn't believe it, was that Jesus remained faithful to God. He remained faithful to God. Jesus remained truthful and honest, despite how man felt about it, despite how man reacted to it, right? And to say, by the way, that Jesus remained faithful to God, as Christians we know that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, so to remain faithful to God is to remain faithful to himself, right? But they were saying all of this, this flattery, these true things, they were saying this to set a trap, and, and they suspected that no matter the answer that Jesus gave, it would be the wrong answer. And, and it's similar uh, to how the religious leaders thought about Jesus' question to them earlier in chapter 11. If you remember when Jesus, they come asking Jesus a question, and he says, I'll answer your question if you answer this question. John the Baptist, right? Is he a prophet from God or from man, right? Is his, is his baptism from God or is his baptism from man, right? They, they knew and, and, you, and Mark gave us a window into their kind of uh, going off to the side to kind of consult one another as they thought through the potential outcomes of, uh, from, from whatever answer they gave, right? That's how they were thinking uh, that perhaps Jesus was thinking in this situation when they gave him their question. They believed that they caught Jesus, if you will. Now, Here's the question they ask. Here's the, here's the trap that they set. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So in other words, is God okay with us paying taxes to Caesar, or is it a sin to pay taxes to Caesar? That's the question. Now, we need to think through why this is a trap. What, what's the actual problem? Why, why, why do um, these... Uh, religious leaders, why do the Herodians think that this is a gotcha sort of question? Well, one theologian says that in asking this, Sproul says, said this, that in asking this question, they tasked Jesus with settling one of the most controversial issues among the Jews at that time. Okay, so they, they, were, they were tasking Jesus with settling one of the most controversial issues among the Jews at that time. Most of the Jews hated the idea of paying a tax to Caesar. And, and many Jews, in fact, they did not pay taxes to Caesar. They viewed Caesar's government as illegitimate and ungodly in, in many ways. And, and some Pharisees even uh, taught that. They, they would continue to kind of put that before um, the Jewish people. So if Jesus answered, yes, God wants you to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Jewish people, they could turn on him, and the religious leaders would in that moment, in their mind, be able to discredit the authority of Jesus Christ. They would be able to finally silence uh, his voice. People would no longer marvel at his teaching and his ministry and his person. 
If Jesus said, no, God does not want you to pay taxes, then the Herodians were there. And the Pharisees were there as witnesses to confirm what the Herodians would report. And the report could go this way. Jesus was becoming a mouthpiece for some sort of revolt, that he was encouraging rebellion, anarchy, perhaps even, amongst the Jewish people, and therefore he was trying to usurp the authority of Caesar. Again, threat to state. So this is the trap. Now, Jesus knows the hypocrisy of his interrogators. And in the way that Mark phrases it, it clues us in once again uh, to the divinity of Jesus, right? The, the fact that he's not, he's not just truly God, truly man, but he's also truly God. Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, but he, this is verse 15, but he, speaking of Christ, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them. Now, we may think that their hypocrisy is obvious, right? But that's only because we have the closed canon of Scripture. That's only because we see, by God's grace, the bigger picture through the written Word of God. But many people that are within earshot of this exchange, and again, picture this happening around the Jewish temple here. Many of the people, they wouldn't necessarily be clued into the hypocrisy here. But Jesus, he knows the heart posture of the Pharisees. He knows the heart posture of the Herodians, right? And he knows this because he's the eternal God. And he responds to them masterfully. He responds to them according to their own folly, right? He responds to them according to the heart posture that they were exhibiting, that they approached him in so that he might magnify not their wisdom, but that he might magnify the wisdom of God. So Jesus responds, and he begins by asking them what feels like less of a question and more like him identifying publicly their hypocrisy and the sinister and murderous spirit they have. Remember, the goal is destroy right? The goal, goal is destroyed. He says this to them first, why do you test me? Why do you test me? And as I read that, and as I've thought about it this week, I couldn't help but to think of Jesus in the wilderness as he was tempted by Satan, right? When he was tempted by Satan, he quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16 uh, to Satan in, in the midst of the temptations, which says, you shall not tempt. And that word tempt, by the way, can be translated as put to the test. You shall not put to the test the Lord your God. So as Jesus asks this question, and, and with what we're given about the heart posture of these individuals, and really the whole setup of the Jewish religious system, right? Jesus, through his initial response, is identifying himself. I think it's not a stretch to say this. He's identifying himself as the Lord your God. Right? Why do you test me? Don't you know you don't test the Lord your God? Right? I think it would be appropriate for us to think that way. Why are you testing me? You do not test the Lord your God. But that's not all he's doing, I think. He's identifying th- those testing him with the great tempter, right? who's Satan, which is striking to me. That's striking. And, and this would not be the first time that he made that connection, at least to, toward the Pharisees. We see him do that in John Chapter 8, verse 44 says this, as he's speaking to them, you are of your father, the devil. 
and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he's a liar and the father of it. So again, this all gives us a window into what's really going on. The question's a setup, right? It's a test, and no matter how you answer a question, again, it's, it seems like you're going to step on a mine. It seems like Christ Jesus is in a minefield. But before Jesus gives his answer, you know, and after he asks, why, why, why do you test me? He asks for a coin, right? Specifically the coin that would be, quote, rendered unto Caesar. And though the Jews despised paying taxes, it, it wasn't Jesus that produced the coin in dispute. It was them that produced the coin in dispute. And, and the value of that coin was about a day's wage for a laborer. That's what a, a Daenerys was. And, and when the coin it was brought to him, he asks his interrogators this question, whose image and inscription is this? Whose image and inscription is this? Now let's pause there. A, a, a Roman silver coin at this time. It had a picture of Tiberius Caesar alongside a Latin inscription that translated says, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And then on the other side of the coin was Tiberius's mother and the inscription in Latin that's translated as high priest. And this shouldn't surprise us knowing just how pagan Rome was, but it does give us further insight into why the Jews were in conflict, right? This Caesar was an emperor that no Jew would consider godly, okay? No Jew would consider him to be godly. One commentator puts it like this, and I, I, I think it helps us, again, it reminds us um, uh, of um, the, the, the situation that just seems like it's impossible that Jesus is in. He, he says it this way, should not the people of God, out of loyalty to their faith, refuse to pay tribute to that kind of government? If Jesus answers yes, pay Caesar, the people will reject him as a coward, a man who does not regard the position of men and who fears for his own welfare, right? So the opposite of how the religious leaders, how the Pharisees and how the Herodians were trying to set him up. If he answers no, do not pay the tax, then it will be simple enough to have him arrested by the Romans. Jesus not only did not dodge the question, but he called attention to the question by dramatically asking for a silver coin. He was about to teach something very important and he wanted everybody to hear. And this leads us to the first thing that I want us to note about the passage. If you're taking notes, it's this. The creator rules over the creature and all spheres of authority. The creator rules over the creature and all spheres, thus all spheres of authority. Right? Jesus makes a, a, a crucial point, and the point leaves the interrogators speechless. In fact, after Jesus answers them, the, the text, just going back to it, it says, and they marveled at him. They marveled at him, and, and not in such a way that they were converted, right? Not in any sort of salvific way, but they were left without the ability to accomplish what it was that they set out to do, right? God's wisdom in Christ, it's undeniable, right? It's undeniable. Jesus's authority and his insight and his presence and his wisdom surpassed anything that anyone had ever seen. And his answer, the answer that was marveled at, 
was render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, let's think about this a bit more. While on the surface, this is a question about taxes, this isn't really about taxes. If you haven't figured that quite, you you haven't figured that out yet. I, I, I even titled the sermon to help us not about taxes, okay? But Jesus, he he introduces into the conversation this idea of image bearing, right? And, and he does that through the smokescreen of the question, so-called question, about coins and taxes. Now, was it lawful or unlawful to pay taxes? Right? It was, of course, lawful to pay taxes. In fact, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking about governing authorities in Romans chapter 13, he said this, render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So if you were hoping that I would say you don't have to pay your taxes anymore, I'm so sorry to disappoint you. But I also want us to see another, even more significant reality. And, and it's both in our passage in Mark and in Romans 13, and I think it's, it's, it's what Jesus is getting at, ultimately, in our passage. But first, let's look at the broader co- context in Romans chapter 13. The first four verses say this. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God... And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for your good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now, what stands out to many is that one must be subject to the governing authorities. What stands out is that to resist authority is to resist the ordinance of God. However, what's often lost on us is just how controversial of a thing this would be for Paul to say this in a society in which Caesar would call himself divine, right? Paul is saying God is over him, right? God is over him. This this gets a a bit at what what I mentioned at the end of my sermon last week, which is that the only absolute authority is the triune God, right? The only absolute authority is the triune God. Everything else is not just a lesser authority, but an authority that's accountable to God, an authority that has obligations toward God. God. The the Romans 13 passage goes on to say in verse 4 that the governing authority is God's, quote, minister to you for good. And you see that word minister used more than once there. And that word translated as minister there is actually the same word for servant. uh, Or uh, in some, uh, depending on the context, it's also the word deacon. In other words, the governing authority is actually a servant of God, which means that God is established government for our good, and that those in governing positions will give an account to God. This would have been, again, highly controversial for the Apostle Paul to say. Caesar does not have absolute authority, right? No creature has absolute authority. And we see that in our Mark text as well. Consider this, right? The first thing that Jesus did 
was to ask about an image. He asked about an image, and then after that, we get his answer. Render to Caesar what has his image on it. Right? Render to Caesar what has his image on it, but render to God what has his image on it. And here's the bigger point. The image bearer has obligations to the one he's imaging. Right? The image bearer has obligations to the one that he's imaging. Right? The clay has obligations to the potter. Right? Now, while this coin had Caesar's image on it, here's an important question for us to ask. Whose image did Caesar have on him? Right? The coin had Caesar's image, but whose image did Caesar have on him? And the answer, of course, is God's image. Right? Caesar belonged to God just like any other creature. He wasn't divine, despite what he might have asserted about himself. Right? And neither is any other governing authority, and neither are you, and neither am I. I love the way that Augustine says, you know, his commentary he gives about Jesus' answer and, and kind of just, it's almost like this devotional way to think about this text. He says, we're God's money. We're God's money. But we are like coins that have wandered away from the treasury. What was once stamped upon us has been worn down by our wandering. The one who restamps his image upon us is the one who first formed us. He himself seeks his own coin as Caesar sought his coin. It is in this sense that he says, that Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. To Caesar, his coins, and to God, your very selves. To God, your very selves. And listen, our triune God is restoring his image of us that was marred by sin, both the first sin in the garden and our own actual transgressions. And this we know, we confess every Lord's Day that this is made possible through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, right? Through his life, through his death, and, and certified by his bodily and eternal resurrection. And so we can, in turn, because the image of God is being progressively restored in us and will ultimately be restored when we receive our glorified bodies and we have been finally conformed in the image of Jesus Christ. We can think about that. We can look forward to that. And then we can, in turn, be grateful to him. We can thank him. We can worship him. And we can confess his absolute lordship over everything. So we must bend a knee and listen. He, Christ, is Lord. Right? There's evidence in our passage here as well, just to note in passing of, of sphere sovereignty. And you've, you've heard us talk about that here at Deer Park Fellowship. But sphere sovereignty as it relates to both the church and the state. And there's also in Christ's comment about image bearing an assertion that the triune God is over both. Both the church and the state. Now, should we conflate the church and state? Absolutely not. Right? Should we assert that all image bearers in either sphere will give an account to God? Yes. And should we see all spheres, home, church, and state, as belonging to God? Yes. The Creator rules over the creature and over all spheres 
of authority. He's the only one with absolute authority. Second thing, and the final thing this morning, we have a model of leadership in Jesus. We have a model of leadership in Jesus. Courage and clarity amidst emotional sabotage. Okay, courage and clarity amidst emotional sabotage. And the language of emotional sabotage is not unique to me. I think it was coined or at least popularized by a rabbi named Edwin, Edwin Friedman. Uh, the, the theme of it has been picked up in a book on leadership getting ready to be published soon by a guy named Joe Rigney that's, that's excellent. But think about the situation through this lens of emotional sabotage for a minute. Right, Jesus, again, he was put in what seemed like an impossible situation, yet he didn't crumble. Okay? He, he was not uh, caught, quote, in his words, verse 13, but why is this? It's because of what the Pharisees and Herodians insincerely confessed that I mentioned earlier. Look back at verse 14 again with me. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true, and you care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. So Jesus, he did not fear man. Right? Jesus was not manipulated by the anxiety or the anger of other people, not for a moment. In other words, Jesus was not someone that could be emotionally sabotaged. And, and that was the attempt being made. Right? They wanted Jesus to crack under the pressure that they were applying. They wanted to back him into a corner so that he would stumble. And, and, and the moment that he stumbled, they were going to pounce on him. But instead, what they insincerely confessed about him proved true in the response that he gave that left them speechless. Right? Now, Jesus being truly man, again, we confess to be truly God. So this, this shouldn't surprise us at all. Right? Had he allowed these enemies to manipulate him, there would be no cross, which means no resurrection which means no forgiveness. Right? But Jesus was laser-focused. He, he wasn't going to be uh, sidelined. He wasn't going to be distracted. He was going to remain steadfast right? in his courage, his clarity, his commitment to, to submitting to the will of the Father in his humanity, which is what led, again, to our, yours and mine, our redemption. And we see in Christ a lesson for us, right? We see him as Savior, but we see him here as an example things that we should practice. Namely, is that we must fear God. We must fear God. We, we have to see the, the propensity that we have for being emotionally sabotaged in our commitment to Christ and His Word. And we have to seek, by the strength of God's might, to fear God and not fear man. Right? Fear of God, it's drastically needed in our day and age, right? in, in this age that's often marked by anxiety and anger. Right? God's people need clarity. God's people need courage, and, and courage and clarity come from the fear of the Lord. In fact, service to Christ, which is the calling of every Christian, it flows from the fear of the Lord. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10 the Apostle Paul says this to the church of Galatia, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant. It can be translated as slave. 
Christ. So this morning we see a confrontation, not about taxes. Right? The Pharisees and the Herodians, they sought to undermine Jesus. Right? As Christians, we, we know that this would have dire consequences had they been successful. But Jesus did what he always did. He, he turned the conversation and in doing so reminded those at the Jewish temple and us so many years later that we are creatures and that God alone is the creator. He reminded us that everybody will, quote, render unto God. And as we know, it's Christ who was not emotionally manipulated for even a moment that rendered unto God that which we couldn't pay. He gave of himself, and because of that, you and I can walk forgiven, we can walk free, and we can walk at peace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we thank you for time in your word again. We ask that you would use it to strengthen us further, God, and Lord, that we would continue to cast ourselves on Christ and live according to your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.